Welcome to Reformed Rakes, a historical romance podcast that would rather reign in hell than serve in heaven. My name is Chels. I'm the writer of the romance substack The Loose Cravat, a romance book collector and book talker under the username Chels underscore ebooks. I'm Emma, a law librarian writing about justice and romance at the Substack Restorative Romance. I'm Beth, and I'm on Book Talk under the name Beth Heyman Reads. Today we will be discussing Stormfire by Christine Monson. If you haven't heard of Stormfire, let me enlighten you. This is a historical romance in Bodice Ripper, a fraught enemies-to-lovers romance between Catherine Enderley, a vivid young countess, and Sean Colhane, the violent, arrogant Irishman who kidnaps her for revenge. Christine Monson wrote six romance novels, and Stormfire was her debut. It was published in 1984, and even though it's out of print, its reputation looms large over romance. This is a book that people call problematic, disgusting, and shocking beyond belief. When I first started talking about bodice rippers on TikTok, I would get the same comment over and over again. Have you read Stormfire yet? I have, and something that continuously frustrates me about the perception of Stormfire is that I feel as though people are deliberately missing the point of it. Stormfire is a romance novel, but genre requirements of romance do not include the necessity of moral or aspirational relationships. If you view Stormfire through the lens of, is this something that I want to happen to me? You are overlooking the major themes of the book, which are cyclical violence and the futility of revenge. Neither I nor the other rakes will argue that this is a perfect or faultless book, but we do believe it's noteworthy, it's moving, and its popularity can't be attributed to an unenlightened and more bloodthirsty past. Before we begin, I want to explain that a tenant of bodice rippers is sexual violence. For many of them, the heroine is assaulted by the hero of the book. Stormfire is a very graphic book, both in its depictions of rape and other types of violence, so please feel welcome to skip this episode if you need to. So, you both just read Stormfire for the first time. Were you surprised by what you read, given the book's reputation? I purposely looked into spoilers for this book so I could retain what I was reading better, because this book is very long. It's 568 pages. And a lot of the reviews I would look up sometimes would just pull the most graphic scenes out of context from the book and they just kind of like list them out and be like look how bananas this book is so when you actually read the book it is a lot the violence is a lot but it starts right away and so you know this is purposeful like this is what Monson is trying to show us so I really enjoyed the writing and we've already talked before we started this that we would like to read other books by her. Yeah, the writing was the big surprise for me as well. This is definitely the oldest romance novel that I've read that's not written by Kathleen uh, Woodowitz, who I've read two books by. And I don't love Woodowitz's writing. Um, she's known for being like really flowery and purple prose. And so I've mostly read her for sort of the novelty of reading these early publications. And Monson doesn't really write like that, or she has some sort of flowery and purple prose, but it seems to have a purpose. Like, I loved some sentences that I read. She just has, like, on a sentence level, I really enjoyed being able to sort of engage with that. But she also, on, like, a more macro level, she has a real knack for creating parallelism between characters, which I think was going to be one of the things that we talk about 
not even just the romantic leads like you would learn something about a character and you think like oh that puts them in alignment with another character in a way that didn't feel sort of contrived it felt very organic and meaningful I also had spoiled myself for most of the plot and I was still surprised by some of those sort of connections that were happening so even if I knew two things were happening to a character I knew the plot of what was going to happen to them the way that Monson was able to link them and make me think about that plot point in a different way made the reading really engaging and enjoy the book despite a lot of the violence um, that was made it harder to read. Before we get into more of the plot points of the book, I'm going to give a summary of about the first third of the plot. So Stormfire wastes no time and pulls no punches. We're immediately introduced to a young Catherine Enderly. She has what the book calls a cultish grace and is on the cusp of adulthood. She's what some people would call too clever for her own good. A minx, a burgeoning manipulator. Her father, John Enderley, is a Viscount, and she inherited the title of Countess from her deceased mother, who was French. Catherine looks up to her father, idolizes him. He used to cultivate her mind, but after the death of his wife, he lost interest in his spitfire of a daughter. While out riding in a coach, Catherine notices an amplified sound. She can hear too many horses. Her coach is being hijacked. Thinking that she's being accosted by one of her suitors, she jumps out of the coach as it stops at an inn. Running inside, she yells that she's being kidnapped. As she pleads for help, she's grabbed from behind by a tall, blonde stranger who announces to the inn that Catherine is a nervous new bride and that they should ignore her. He drags her out of the inn, and Catherine attempts to pay the man off. He ignores her and instead leads her to a boat and begins to tie her up. We then learn that the blonde man who kidnapped Catherine is Liam Colhane. He's dismayed that he's been reduced to kidnapping young women, and he wonders to himself what his brother wants with her. His brother, Sean, has what he calls a heart blackened by hate, permanently altered by being the sole survivor of a massacre at his village called Kenlow, where he witnessed his mother die. Before she died, Sean's mother Megan had absconded with him, leaving her eldest son, Liam, and her husband, Brendan, behind. Years later, a newly motherless Sean returned to his father's household and was embraced as Brendan's favored son. Brendan saw Liam as artistic and soft, but he was pulled to Sean's ferocity. This dynamic continued into adulthood. Liam is titled and ostensibly in charge, but he and everyone else answers to Sean. Liam somewhat reluctantly delivers Catherine to Sean, and in their first meeting, they're shocked by each other. Catherine thinks of Sean as Lucifer from Milton's Paradise Lost, while Sean compares her to an Undine, a mythical mermaid. They immediately face off, with Catherine taunting Sean for having other men do the work to abduct her, while Sean tells her that, in Ireland, she's lower than an Irish pig. She survives slaughter by his word alone. For the insult, Catherine spits on Sean, and he backhands her in return. They continue to physically struggle, with Catherine attempting to defensively hit him with a candlestick, but she notes that Sean seems almost weary in his response. He subdues her, then rapes her, comparing her in his mind to the discarded women of Kenlow. Catherine is shell-shocked until she notices that Sean has picked up her soiled undergarments and is beginning to package them. Realizing that he's going to send them to her father, Catherine springs to intercept, protesting that he will not shame her father. Shame him, Sean scoffs, telling her that her father is a war criminal, and that, quote, he has enough blood on his hands to taint the North Sea. 
Not an Irishman born won't raise cheer as your unworthy father kicks into hell. Sean summons Peg, the housekeeper and cook, to put Catherine to work. Peg warns Catherine away from trying to escape, and then leads her to a dismal room, her cell. The next morning, Peg brings Catherine oversized clothes and takes her to the kitchen to work. Later, Catherine is tasked with serving the men of Shallan, including Sean. When he ignores her, she decides to ruin his food. Sean's reaction is without theatrics. He just tells her that since she's so careless with his food, she will go without. This begins a trend. Catherine disobeying Sean, knowing what it will cost her if Sean does not make idle threats, and Sean swiftly punishing her. Catherine observes Sean leading men in his drills, and watches as a subordinate begins to argue with Sean, then moves to attack him. Sean first breaks his hand under his boot, and then breaks his ribs with a few brutal kicks. Horrified, Catherine realizes that she has to get away from him, and quickly. Catherine sneaks into the library to steal some maps for her escape, and discovers a map of Holden Woods on her father's estate of Windmere. She realizes that Sean plans to destroy the timber there as part of his revenge. As she moves to put the maps into place, Mora, another servant, finds her in the library. Catherine knocks her out with an inkwell, then steals Sean's horse, Mephisto, for her escape. That night, she realizes they've caught up with her and decides to dismount from the horse and run to the cliffs, hoping to hide. Sean, Liam, and the rest of their men catch up to a knife-wielding Catherine. Sean says, Now, if you don't throw that thing, I'll take it away from you. If you throw it and miss, you're going to think the culmination of our last argument was idyllic. If you don't miss, my men are going to throw you off that cliff after giving vent to their irritation at losing the source of their income. So don't be nervous, and take your best shot, Miss Enderly. You sure as hell won't get another. Catherine tries to attack Sean anyway, but he subdues her. After he brings her back from the cliffs, Sean punishes Catherine by putting her in irons, one around her foot and another around her neck. He then gives her a choice that is no choice at all. Sleep with him or sleep with the rest of his men. Catherine chooses the devil she knows, and Sean sets the terms for when she'll come to his bed. He uses derogatory language to goad her, getting perverse pleasure when she fights back in anger. Catherine is clear throughout that she hates Sean, and she would never willingly be near him. At some point, this begins to bother him, but he's so absorbed in his own cruel revenge, he doesn't understand why Catherine's feelings should start to matter. Sean gathers men to leave for Holden Wood, and Catherine asks if he is planning on destroying it. He says he will, but he makes no promise that he won't kill her father's men along with the timber. Before he leaves, Peg confronts him and asks if he wants Catherine to live. She says if he does, something has to change. She's noticed Catherine standing on the balcony, staring down at the stone flagging, implying that Catherine is suicidal. Peg tells him to give Catherine to Liam, who will love her, but Sean angrily refuses. With Sean away, Liam and Catherine spend more time together. Liam is enchanted by Catherine and regrets aiding his brother in her capture. There's a proprietary tone to Liam's interactions with Catherine that imply he has only good intentions so long as his good intentions align with what he wants. Later, another servant, Maud, attacks Catherine with a carving knife. Catherine defends herself with a broomstick and is able to knock Maud unconscious. When Catherine asks why Maud attacked her, she's told that Maud's entire family were killed by colonial Protestants, and that Maud, Americans, and the English are one and the same. 
Sean grows increasingly troubled by what he calls Liam's outbursts. He previously wanted Liam to assert himself more, but Liam is increasingly challenging him over Catherine and maligning him in front of his men. He decides to send Liam away for a month to America on a merchant ship. Two weeks into Liam's exile, Catherine is attacked by Maude and Mora at the docks. They attempt to brutalize her, but Catherine dodges some blows while pulling them into the icy water. Catherine is the only one that can swim, so she pulls Nora to safety. When she goes to help Maude, Maude grabs her by the throat and drags her underwater. A lookout who observed the altercation finds Sean, and Sean rushes to pull an unconscious Catherine out from the water. Sean cares for a traumatized, but still alive, Catherine. They eat dinner together, and, drunk off champagne, Catherine propositions her dear jailer. She passes out soon after. Later, she finds out that Maude was put to death for attempting to kill her. Catherine finds her grave and plants white flowers called Stars of Bethlehem, which will eventually bloom and overtake the hill. Catherine and Sean have reached what seems like an uneasy truce when Liam returns home. Noticing her subdued reaction, Sean asks what's wrong. You aren't rising to my barbs, he says. I feel like I'm winning. Call me a foul name and you'll feel better. Let me go back to England, she responds. Kill me. Do whatever you like. Only let it end now. No, he answers. So this point is about one third of the way through the book, and it's a crucial point of the story because it's where Sean realizes that he wants Catherine's consent. This is the only thing he couldn't take from her, and she answers, My experience of brutality has come from you. Never beauty, tenderness, or affection. How can I give you affection when you seek to wrench it from me and crush it as heedlessly as that boy might a butterfly, tearing off its bright wings to keep in its pocket, startled to soon find it colorless and dead? People often say that bodice rippers romanticize abuse, but while the abuse scenes are difficult to read, that's not what Monson is doing here. What do you make of this moment in Catherine and Sean's relationship? Yeah, so I take issue with sort of using the word romanticized to describe this book. There are these moments of tenderness that if you take them out of context between Sean and Catherine, they're very sweet and it sort of reads like a romance novel. A lot of the moments where they share meals together reminded me of a couple of Laura Kinsale books like Flowers from the Storm or My Sweet Folly were the two that I thought of. Both books where this hero can be a little scary and capable of violence even if they don't act on it in the same way that Sean does. But much like the violence in this book, you don't read the romantic scenes out of context. The effect for me reading these scenes where they come together and have meals together is one where I'm worried about Catherine. I'm worried about the violence that's going to follow because that's the context that you're reading in. There's one scene where Sean teases Catherine about her fichu, which is the sort of um, covering over her, her neckline of her dress, and he's aroused by her prudery. This scene is very similar to a scene that happens in A Lady Awakened between um, Martha and Theo that is incredibly charming in that book. But the same thing happening in this book, I worry what's going to happen next. That's the scene that precedes this conversation about consent that Catherine, the, the speech that Catherine gives Sean. It leads to Catherine barbing Sean about his sense of absolution and his eye for an eye system of justice. And he retorts to Catherine about her myopia for her father's destruction in his community What's interesting about the, sort of the violence and the question of whether it's romanticizing it is I think it's interesting that the crime of rape is one that's focused on mental states because it takes the same form as an act that can be consented to. Um, so it's unique in a crime that you, you're concerned with both the mental state of the person committing the crime, 
which is true of all crimes. Mens rea is the, the phrase for the element of what mental state do you have when you commit a crime. But we're also concerned with the mental state of, a, of the victim, because the victim, if they're consenting, it's not a crime. If they are not consenting, it's rape. And this is interesting in the development of the novel. Um, so the history of the novel often is wrapped up with the history of rape law because of the exploration of the interiority of the mind and private articulations of feelings. And it's linked to this demand for mental state. So the subject of rape and consent comes up early in the formation of the novel, like in Samuel Richardson's Pamela and Clarissa, which are early English examples of psychological novels, because they prioritize this interior responses to external actions that make up the plot of the novel. Catherine externalizes what the reader has known for a while and what Strawn struggles with to grasp. Her mind is not necessarily going to follow the wrenching that he does of her body, and that his mental state, the change from intent to rape, and the, to the intent to elicit consent in the moment has no bearing on her mind. Um, his change in intent is, is going to be completely separate from her change of um, intent, like whether she what she's thinking about her own consent. Yeah, it's like there isn't really a romance between them. Like nothing can actually build and grow when it's a subjugation. So at this point, it's violence and harm. And that's something that they both need to acknowledge and speak about to each other. I love Catherine's butterfly speech for this very reason. Um, he wants something from her, but up until this point, he's taken everything by force and consent is not something that you can take. Uh, so, and, and so this is also kind of a moment too, like when he decides like, I want a relationship with Catherine, that's when he, he stops assaulting her. Like he, he has to cut completely, he completely cuts everything off. So it's kind of like this like really clear bizarre dividing line that like he's agreed to he has decided like okay well I'm going to do this and she's like this is not this is not that easy like after everything how can this happen this way I think you need a moment like this in this kind of novel because if you have one character who's an abuser and another character is being abused but your ultimate end game is a happily ever after there has to be the big consent speech there has to be a change that's about to happen, but like you guys have been saying, it's just on Sean's from Sean's point of view. She can't just change everything that's happened. And this is also the moment where I think Sean has like like disaggregated Catherine as like revenge object and Catherine as like his object from his mind. And mm -hmm. this is the the speech for her is her saying like I'm the same person on both of these. Whether you're raping me to get revenge on my father or raping me because you're trying to objectify me and hurt me as a person, which comes up later in the book when he's um, continues to assault her for different reasons. It's not Catherine Enderly, daughter of John Enderly, is not a separate person from Kit, who is living in in Shalon with with John. Like they're the same person and experiencing the same abuse. And I I think. I think he understands that later in the novel, even as he continues to assault her, he sees her as like this unified object. But up until this point, I don't think he's thought of her as something other than her father's daughter. I like that it does actually take him a while to make that separation. Like we have this speech and there's still cycles of violence that happens afterwards. Like it's not just one character arc going steadily upwards. I think mm -hmm. in other novels, you can kind of have that decision point, And then from there, things just kind of steadily get better. Mm -hmm. I was thinking of like to have and to hold. I feel like Sebastian has that moment where he sees himself. This is, yeah, he sees himself through how his friends see him and how terrible he is. And I feel like from there, there's still conflict happening, but 
I feel like their relationship just steadily gets better and better. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you guys feel the same way or read it the same, but that's like my other reference point for Potter's Rippers. <laughs> yeah, and I'm like that you brought up to Heaven to Hold um, because I, I, I think it's because like Emma has your newsletters on bodice rippers and then one of them was focused on to happen to hold and then I remember what Mm -hmm. you said about to happen to hold is like when you were going into reading a bodice ripper you were expecting to find eroticized abuse but instead Mm -hmm. it was like more explicitly on page like communicating what is happening like I think that a lot of times the way that people perceive bodice rippers is they think that a rape happens and that they're told it's romantic and there are books where that happens, but a lot of times it's like, this is a violent thing that is happening on the page. And it's like, what do we do now that this we've witnessed this very violent thing happen between two characters that we are going to stay with through the end? Like, it's not like one of them is going to, we're, we're with both of them. So it's, there's, how, do, how does this work? Yeah, this is what my newsletter that's going to accompany this episode is going to be about. But this, this element of, talking about the consent of this relationship i'm surprised that this is the only bodice ripper beauty and the beast story that i'm like aware of the other beauty and beast stories that i've read really they romanticize the incarceration of the beauty character in a way that is like not problematized and not considered um like non-consensual relationship and those those seem to be like actually dealing with less of this directly that it's like if you're incarcerated in a home that is not your own you've been kidnapped you're going to have like consent issues with a, your captor. And that's that's Catherine's position that is like, as long as she's captive, she's not consenting. And sort of this like inability to consent. Uh, and she struggles with that even when she's sort of falling in love with Sean. She sort of knows, she's like, but he's my captor. Like I I, I can't fall in love with him because I'm not free to leave. I, she acknowledges that's not even a decision that she's really making. So we've introduced Liam Colhane and he's essentially Sean's foil in the story. He's the heir, the golden child, and someone that Catherine initially feels safer around. Yet Liam is not what he appears. He's the nice guy in a story with no nice guys. What do you think about the way that Sean and Liam were raised and how they vie for Catherine's affections? So Liam's coercion and manipulation of Catherine, particularly his insistence that he loves her and he has this desire to keep her, extends to his role as Sean's foil because he's also violating Catherine. So both it's not like one of them is not violating her and one is perpetually doing it. They're both doing it. But his violation of her is strictly about having power over her. And to some extent, Sean, it seems like part of this revenge against Sean, just like Sean's abuse of her, is revenge against John Enderley. For Sean, Catherine is a symbol of Ireland's systemic oppression by the English. But for Liam, she's a symbol of his potential victory over his familial subjugation. Yeah, and we've mentioned second son syndrome on this podcast a few times, and I think Liam is kind of a firstborn son with second son syndrome. So he's perceived as weak by his father for his artistic pursuits and disinclination for the sort of fear-based leadership that Sean revels in. Even though he's titled, he's older, and he doesn't have the rumor of illegitimacy that Sean does, Sean still comes out on top almost every time. Uh, So we kind of begin with some sympathy for him because early on he protests Sean's treatment of Catherine. Sean repeatedly calls Liam Galahad and is dismissive of Liam's infatuation with Catherine, despite the fact that Sean, while not necessarily infatuated by this point, is obsessed with her too. But 
Liam feels just as proprietary over Catherine as Sean does. He thinks he'll automatically come out on top because he hasn't subjected Catherine to brutality. But there's a scene where he accosts her and she's able to escape him because he's, as the novel says, unaccustomed to rape. So as Emma mentioned, there's kind of this question of how much of Liam's, like, desire for Catherine is really about Catherine at all and how much of it is about like getting one over on Sean like getting revenge on Sean my first point I just I have Liam is the worst and that's what I had in this (laughs) section for a long time um I did want to reference back to something Chels said where Liam or Sean calls Liam Galahad a reference to Sir Galahad and he's the son of Lancelot But he's known as the perfect knight. And through this nickname, we see kind of how Sean perceives him and then how Monson plans to subvert his role in this story. He initially kind of reads as someone who will play the white knight and maybe rescue Catherine. But I don't know if if maybe Em and I were primed not to like him. But the whole time I was like, this guy seems suspicious. (laughs) I think there I was one of the things I was tracking as I was reading was like people being suspicious of Liam and a lot of the servants are like because Catherine is asking like why why do people follow Sean and not Liam and the servants do not like Liam they do not trust him mm-hmm. they he does not is not a good leader because Catherine is really confused she's like Liam's the older brother he's the one with the title why why is Sean the one giving orders and there seems to be this understanding that like if Liam were in charge things would be so much worse so we need Sean to be in charge so when she talks to the servants, especially Peg and Mora, it becomes clear that like Liam, anyone with a history of Liam knows not to trust him. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. I I feel like this uh, reading it the second time, I I was like, okay, I'm, I'm keeping an eagle eye out for Liam being suspect. But I do think the first time, I think the first time when I was reading it, I wasn't, I I kind of expected Liam to actually be a good person. And mm-hmm. I wasn't. And, and while I did notice the servants were being like, oh, he can't be like Sean, he can't be like Sean, I, I kind of attributed that to uh, Sean's propensity for violence. Because, like, the way that Sean rules, the way that Sean is in charge, he does his drills, and he uh, he runs his household is all fear-based. And so that's not necessarily a good thing. So I thought, like, kind of, like, when seeing, like, maybe maybe they just, like, see him as being, like, ineffective but I thought that was like kind of a really clever subversion. Well, it didn't work for Emma and Beth, but it worked on me <laughs> where I was, I was I, yeah. actually surprised. <laughs> like I said, I think we were primed to be like suspicious of Liam. So I wonder right. if I just read this book, I would be like, when is Liam going to come in and save the day? Because that really is right. what his character is set up to do. You want to uh-huh. feel like this is Catherine's way out. Like this is who's going to save her. So I'm so glad that Christine Monson did not go that way. I think it made the story infinitely more interesting. Sorry, yeah. go ahead, Emma. Yeah, so he's references Galahad, and then later I noticed Sean calls him Judas, and it's like mm. he is like supposed to be this like chosen person, the closest yeah. person to Sean who betrays him, and not just betrays Sean, but betrays Ireland and the castle and and everyone and Catherine to some extent. That he he just ultimately is self serving. And I think Sean is also self-serving, but Sean has this, like, mission in mind of, like, Ireland and and he has a goal while Liam really is just focused on, on Liam and he'll pretty much sacrifice anyone to, to achieve his ends. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of difficult to overstate how terrifying parts of this book are. Sean is probably the scariest, most violent main character in a romance novel I've read. 
A lot of discussion about Stormfire is about Sean's brutality in a way that feels dismissive, as though the salacious elements of the story decontextualize, kind of as we were talking about earlier, are all there is to it. So how do you feel about the way that violence is used in this book? So I read a lot of the reviews that sort of pulled out Sean's violence just so that I could follow the plot. But I think when you focus only on Sean's violence, it makes it seem like there's some version of this book that Catherine can win, like that Catherine can overcome this personal violence, if only Monson thought to write it that way. Um, But it seems like there's sort of two tracks that Monson doesn't take. And I think characters even point this out, that these are the other options of like what could be happening. So it's Catherine dying, Sean killing her um, because the violence becomes so intense, either or her killing herself, dying at her own hand, or her killing Sean. One of these would be an even more upsetting book if we went through all of this and Catherine died. And the other one avoids sort of the reality of what is revealed to be Catherine's life. She can't really go home again. Um, She does go back home later in the book. And after she realizes that her father is a war criminal and a profiteer who's planning on selling her to the highest bidder as a mistress. So she's going from one violent situation to another. She also deeply feels the violence and bloodshed that happened in Ireland that she became aware of when she was with Sean that led to her privileged existence as her father's daughter. The violence that her father enacts is what allows her to have this life life of comfort. And then even Liam, who's seen as the savior, is really just embodying a different type of violence. This is not to diminish Sean's violence, but given the world that Monson creates, there's not a version of this story that Sean's violence is isolated and is overcome by Catherine, because she's always going to be expelled to a different type of violence once she escapes Sean. And Sean's violence out of context is cast exclusively as personal violence. Like when you read a list of things that he does to Catherine, it seems like this litany of what's the worst thing a man can do to a woman. But the surrounding context is that Catherine is Sean's political enemy, first as a simulacrum of her father, but then in her own right because of her betrayal. When she uh, marries Liam and absconds with him, indirectly leading to the suppression of the Irish Rebellion, Though the level intent as of at the result of this is ambiguous for both Sean and Catherine at different points, that context doesn't excuse or diminish his acts, but it does sort of take away that element of this like litany of what are the worst things that one person can do to another as if, as if that book the book is an exercise in that. There are other things that going on that create context that make it more of a narrative arc rather than an exercise in salaciousness. I think Monson establishes pretty quickly the fu- the futility of violent revenge, and it's the point. We've referenced other reviewers because that's mostly the writing that we have. Like, there's not any academic writing that I could really find about Stormfire, despite its uh, reputation. But I did want to reference one review, which really misunderstands Monson's intentions. But I want to use it as a way for us to talk about how Monson describes violence. So this is from the Romantic Parvenu blog. For me, the really surprising thing about Stormfire is how nonchalant Monson was in her treatment of the hero's behavior. The worst scenes were delivered in a very bland and casual manner, without the emphasis one would expect when reading about gang rapes or castrations or what have you. Perhaps this is just how books like this work. The grotesque violence is taken for granted to such an extent that it's not worth emphasizing. Oh look, he's spanking her bloody. Oh look, he's raping her for the upteenth time. Oh look, he's locking her in the cellar and starving her. What's the big deal, right? Stormfire is a litany of misfortune delivered in the blasé tone of a grocery list. 
Monson's descriptions of violence don't need overly wrought words. She allows the violence to stand on its own without her added emphasis. I'm not really sure <laughs> what this reviewer wanted out of these descriptions when if Monson had been flowery, if she had sensationalized the violence, which runs count in which runs counter to the cyclical nature of violence that Monson is trying to portray. She trusts her readers to understand the brutality of the violence by simple description. And it's heavy enough. There were several messages in our group chat where we would read a particular scene and someone would be like, I just stared out a window for a little while. I, nonchalant is not how I would describe anything no. in this book. Like, <laughs> no. I have never... I've never met someone who, or I've never talked to someone who has read Stormfire and been unmoved. Like, it seems oh, like yeah. people are either, like, enraged to the point of, <laughs> or or they're, or they're, or they're like, I can't stop thinking about it. It's stuck with me. Um, so, yeah, if, if nonchalant is just. Yeah, I think she writes those scenes really well, actually. I think some of the strongest scenes are the most violent ones because she mm-hmm. is willing to go there. Like, she's like, this is the character I wrote. This is how they would act in this situation. So mm-hmm. she kind of just lets it happen. And I think the difference in, like, emotional reaction that you have while reading the book versus reading the reviews on Goodreads that are, are literally just the grocery list of bad things that happen. Yeah. Like, there's a big emotional gap between those experiences and that that says something about Monson's writing. I also think if it was like super flowery or even more descriptive, that would be hard. It would be very hard to read. I think she really pushes the reader to the limit of like what they can take. And because it's like this cyclical nature, like you sort of, you get a break um, of like, there will be a scene of violence and then there'll be a scene of Catherine learning about like the mechanics of the estate. Um, and so you get this sort of, break where you're you're able to process things mm-hmm. um but if it was even more descriptive and it was like you're just numb all the time yeah it would be a very hard book to read but we we were all able to finish the book mm-hmm. which may not be true for everyone maybe there other people have like a different like threshold of like what they can take when they're reading but i think there is like a, a level of distance that she keeps so that you can read it <laughs> um and you know what's going on mm-hmm. um it, I, di- I never felt like i was it didn't. It didn't feel like gory. It wasn't like watching a movie of like intense, like body horror or something. Yeah, um, I th- it just was more like I, this is a bad thing that is happening that I I know the name of. Yeah, I think she. I've been thinking about this since Bailey, uh, at Bailey reads books on TikTok and everywhere. One of our smart smart friends who will always quote. <laughs> I have not stopped thinking about Bailey made a video talking about the relationship between romance and horror. And how there's a much stronger relationship there than you would kind of first think there was. And so I'm thinking about Monson's intention with the violence and Radcliffe, the gothic writer from like the late 1700s. She has this like very famous quote where she talks about the difference between terror and horror. And she kind of chalks up horror being a little bit more cheap than terror. Like her intent when she wrote her books was to terrify and I kind of feel like that's what Monson is pulling from, like this gothic tradition. Mm-hmm. And she is intending to terrify us a bit. And being terrified is not bad. I Like when you're reading this book, I think it's we should be terrified by the things that Sean does and that some of the other characters do. 
Catherine is such a strong character in the story. And so a kind of like a lot of uh, how people kind of like talk about it is like all of these things are happening to Catherine. And I think kind of like what makes it bearable to me uh, is kind of the way that Catherine is always kind of plotting, like, how do I get out of this situation? Like how, mm-hmm. um, what am I going to do next? Like you, Catherine is very much kind of like trying to solve her solve her situation and I don't necessarily think that it would be a bad thing if that she wasn't doing that and that if she mm-hmm. didn't react that way like because people react under stress and pressure in very different ways but I do think that makes like the vi- at least in the early part of the book the violent scenes kind of a lot more bearable like knowing that Catherine is still in has that state of mind and is still able to kind of like try to regroup so I think this book has a lot to say about the unique ways that women suffer under wartime violence. And I do think like while being graphic and extremely uncomfortable and hard to read at some point, it's also the point. In the beginning, Sean makes it clear that Catherine is a sort of stand-in for not just her father's crimes, but all of Britain. In his eyes, nothing that has or will happen to Catherine can make up for what the Irish have had to endure under British rule. He tells her, Miss Enderley, you've only had a taste of the Irish condition. For 700 years, British ambitions have brought war to this land with its disease, famine, and death. What you've endured has been nothing. If you think a slap in the face, a lean mattress, a limited wardrobe, a few floors to scrub, and a single man between your legs is a miserable life, you've not begun to learn misery. The Irish will never tolerate the English heel on their necks. Shall we see how well you stand an Irish heel on yours? We will get to this later on in the episode, but Sean is gearing up for a rebellion that there is historical basis for, the Irish Rebellion of 1798. The Society of United Irishmen was founded by Theobald Wolfe Tome in 1791, and they were initially considered a peaceful organization for reform. But when the French Revolution broke out, the United Irishmen, who were sympathetic to their cause, were perceived as a greater threat by British government. In 1794, Wolftone was exiled to America, and there was a crackdown on membership by the British that helped radicalize the group, who now wanted to break all ties with Britain. Tone attempts to return to Ireland in 1796 with a French fleet, but was unsuccessful due to harsh winter storms. The response of the British was swift attempts at suppression, including torture and mass arrests. The rebellion kicked off in Dublin and went on for three months, was unsuccessful, and resulted in tens of thousands of deaths. So Stormfire was written in the early 1980s and published in 1984 in the thick of the troubles of Northern Ireland, which is very much a continuation of the conflict Monson was writing about. Yeah, so this is something that I was surprised at when I was reading it. I had not connected this to the Troubles at all until there was one point where there's a reference to Ireland getting weapons from France. And I was like, that sounds familiar. And I thought of the Middle Eastern countries, particularly Libya and Palestine, giving weapons to Ireland. And I was like going to look up, I looked up the timeline for the Troubles. I was like, what's going on? What would Monson have been hearing about in Ireland leading up to the publication of this book? And it's very much right in the middle of the Troubles. So 1981 is the probably the most famous hunger strike showdown with Thatcher, where 10 prisoners starved themselves to death. And it was heralded as a win for Thatcher, her sort of staying the course and, and not compromising with the prisoners was a political win for her, but made her even more reviled in Ireland. And then that's when sort of the, the uh, extreme bombings by the IRA really start in the early 80s. So there's a bombing in Balakenny in 1982. There's a bombing at Harrods, Harrods in London in 1983, and then there was a bombing in Brighton in 1984, which happened after the publication of Stormfire. 
and so this is I think Monson was probably aware of what was going on just as someone who's living in the early 80s and writing about Ireland. She's so historically accurate when she talks about the, re the rebellion going on in the 1790s. It makes sense to me that she would be thinking about what's going on in the Troubles in Northern Ireland and Ireland at the time. Not, it's not immediately obvious in 1984, but this is the period that Son Fein is able to gain an electoral basis in, to participate in elections both in Ireland and Northern Ireland. So it's this big period of transition and of sort of legal political power. And that's a theme of the way that uh, Catherine and Sean talk about Ireland. And Catherine even acknowledges that she, this is a quote from Catherine in the book. She says, to remain free, Ireland must remain united. So it feels like these um, themes of the politics of the Troubles are sort of woven throughout the book in, in ways that are sort of unexpected, but also mostly unexpected because I hadn't seen other people talk about it in the Goodreads reviews that I had read that were really focused on the personal violence from Sean to Catherine, rather than connecting the sort of political violence that's going on in the rebellion to um, the political violence that was going on when Monson was writing this book. Yeah, I think whenever I think of Stormfire, I and people kind of talk about the violence, I'm just like, I think we I want to zoom out a little bit because there's so much violence in this book. Um, but you kind of get that firsthand between Catherine and Sean. But it's, it's, it's kind of like part of a whole. And it's and kind of like what it has to say about wartime violence and all of the other sufferings that are kind of weaved into Catherine's. Uh, it kind of paints a different picture than I think if you were just to solely focus on that. I kind of, this is a like a, an addendum or side point, but I do like these older historicals that will go political. I feel like a lot of books nowadays just, you're just kind of somewhere in time you don't <laughs> always know. But, like, I also read another book recently, The Magnificent Rogue by Iris Johansson. And, like, Queen Elizabeth is a character in this book. Like, and also in this book, we'll talk about it later, like, Napoleon is a character. <laughs> someone who, like, has an effect on Catherine's life. Like, I, I don't know. I just, I like, I like that they did that. <laughs> we don't really do that anymore. Yeah, no, that's definitely... I can't believe I've only read one book with Napoleon in it. Like, the is so, <laughs> such a big deal. Right. It's like, mm -hmm. if someone is disabled, it's because they were at Waterloo. But no one is, go like, no one's in Napoleon's court. Um, this is the first book I've read where Napoleon actually shows up. We do get a lot of Duke of Wellington. I want to start a Duke of yeah. Wellington Goodreads shelf, just, like, Duke uh, of Wellington yeah. shout out, and I can just <laughs> check it out. <laughs> Rogue Rebel does show up in this book, and it's, like, Bo Rebel is, like, a little weenie, and it's, like, yeah, but That's, Bo Rebel is always he a weenie. <laughs> <laughs> um, the butt of every joke. <laughs> um... So moving on, Maud, uh, as you'll remember, um, that servant character, attempts to kill Catherine multiple times. And we can see that these are acts of a deeply traumatized person lashing out the only way within her power. What do you see as Maud's significance to the story? So Maud is a character who comes up really early in the book, but I didn't realize the significance um, until sort of the final attempt on, on Catherine's life. Um, and I think Chels mentioned that they also, when they were reading the book the second time, noticed Maud more. But I saw Maud's death um, as really opening the door for Catherine, both for Sean and the reader. Catherine has all these reasons to misunderstand Maud, and she's probably safer after Maud's death. Maud has attempted to hurt her so many times that Catherine's position in the castle seems less precarious once Maud is dead. But Catherine really earnestly mourns Maud, like planting the flowers on her shallow grave, um, hoping they take over the hill as they grow. Both Catherine's physical ailments at the time and the circumstances of Maud's funeral, where the 
priest refuses to do the formal burial rites prevent Catherine from actually mourning in a community at the funeral. It isn't clear at the time of that revelation to Sean or the reader, but it's later revealed that this parallels what happened to Catherine when her mother died. Um, her mother's death was incredibly gory. Um, she did a blind jump on a horse and lands on something behind the, the wall, which later is revealed to be have been planted there by Catherine's father, and is basically impaled and dies while Catherine watches her. And this is the source of Catherine's nightmares in the castle, even as she's experiencing all this violence in the castle. Her, her nightmares are about her mother's death. And she also has this fear of blind jumps on her horse, which is important to the plot later. But in response to Catherine's trauma, her father puts her in a sparse room and keeps her away from the mourners, even uh, having Catherine bound when she lashes out physically. This feels like the sort of the removal of her ability to mourn feels like a parallel to Maud. But Sean's reaction to Catherine's inability to mourn Maud is actually an act of kindness and sort of expresses empathy to her for the first time. Um, and this leads to an early understanding between Catherine and Sean. And it feels like the first in a series of these like doors opening between the couple. I like that you uh, connected Maud and Catherine because I um, connected Maud and Sean. I keep thinking about how much Maud and Sean have in common. They both are survivors that watch their families be brutalized in front of them. Maud's quest for violence is not really that much more misdirected than Sean's. Sean is ostensibly hurting Catherine out of revenge, but does he really do anything to John Enderley? Maud is possibly what would have happened to Sean if he wasn't a man, if he wasn't rewarded for violence. He's surrounded by people, but isolated by his hatred and unable to form a connection. After Catherine's butterfly speech, he tells her, I gape at love and rend it with clumsy fingers, yet still hold its tatters close in idiot hope it may live again. Solitary death is no more welcome than solitary life. So yet I stand and refuse to fall on my sword. It's you, fair Diana, who must lower me in all my bleeding dreams to dust. It also seems kind of poignant to me that Sean calls for Maud's death after her second attack on Catherine. That death, that could be so... That could so easily be Sean's fate. There's another version of the story somewhere that ends in Sean's death, as you mentioned earlier, Emma. Okay, so you both touch on excellent points. <laughs> um, how Catherine empathizes with Maud and recognizes she's driven by such brutal trauma, and then how Maud and Sean are similar. So would we say Catherine's interactions with Maud paved the way for her greater understanding of Sean? I don't want to minimize Sean's abuse and violence, but perhaps through Maud, she can kind of contextualize his behavior better. I like that point a lot because I, I this is just like something that I, the image is like burned into my brain is like Catherine planting the stars of Bethlehem on Maud's grave. Like Catherine is mourning Maud. Like Catherine has feels connected to Maud and and doesn't really have that reaction that you would expect. Expect like as Emma said, she's safer that Maud is dead and that her. Her, the way that she attacked her it seems kind of inexplicable. Uh, but I think that Catherine recognizes that connection between Maud and Sean. Like, they both don't really know how to react to their trauma, and they do so in really inappropriate ways. And it kind of spirals out that other that affects other people and hurts other people. But it's still sad that Maud dies. Like, it's still, yeah. it's still sad. Yeah, it really emphasizes, like, there's no, there's no winning. There's no... There's no solution. It's if Maud or Sean stops hurting Catherine, that doesn't stop the trauma that they experience. Mm -hmm. And even we think about trauma and like how we would even deal with it now. 
it's like this is like such political and like widespread trauma it's like the trauma is between these countries that are hurting these families and villages and so it's not even that sort of interpersonal trauma that we think about like the rake with a, a chip on his shoulder because his dad didn't love him enough that is sometimes the plot of historical romance um that can be sort of solved through processing out loud with a partner this is this is there's no winning there's no solution to this and i think that's the point of the book that we see over and over again that these people can try to make their way and build connections and build empathy for each other but there's no there's no undoing this and also knowing like what happens with the irish rebellion and then what continues to happen with ireland for the next two centuries after this book is set there's no there's no if catherine and sean reconcile with each other ireland is still going to be the subject of subjugation that that's not going to solve solve that so john enderley catherine's father is the main villain of the story at least for the first three quarters but unbeknownst to Catherine at the beginning, he's a smuggler who is pitting England and France against each other during the Napoleonic Wars. The reason Sean hates him so much is that he is responsible for the massacre at Kentlow. He thought that engineering a massacre would incite an Irish rebellion, and then he could turn around and profiteer in the name of the crown. We see so much of Sean's rage directed at Catherine, but when he meets John Enderley for the first time when he's in disguise in England, he feels hollow. What do you make of this? Yeah, so the part that Sean has the big reaction to John Enderley is not when he first sees him and is aware of the sort of political elements of it. There's nothing else that happens that creates like a personal reaction to him. So when Sean goes to England, he meets an old friend who helped him attend Eton under an assumed identity, the one that he's taking up again as his disguise during the horse race. This friend, Fitzhugh, and then later other acquaintances repeat to Sean notions like, don't seek Ireland's freedom in England's blood. Our destiny lies in the law. Sean responds, thank you, sir, but I'm no barrister. The acquaintances repeat the sentiment, believing that Sean is his Anglo-Irish disguise, and he responds even more specifically and politically. The governing law of Ireland is English. By English law, a Catholic Irishman is an enemy of the crown, unprotected by any law save the rubble of the Gaelic codes. Sean recognizes, unlike the Englishmen around him, even those sympathetic to the Irish cause, that legal mechanisms cannot and will not serve the Irish people. But when met with the option to kill Enderley, it seems up until this point that Sean would be willing to do it on site. That's sort of the confrontation that we're expecting when he sees Enderley at the horse race. Sean is numb. What actually elicits a reaction is when Sean realizes Enderley's plan with Catherine is to arrange for her to be the mistress of a French duke. He develops personal anger in response to the personal harm to Catherine. I think Sean feels hollow when he sees John Enderley because revenge is hollow. So Sean has this thought when he meets him. And Emma just referenced it that uh, he feels numb, but this is the whole quote. Since meeting his sworn enemy face to face, he had dispassionately observed him as if the man were a viper in a glass case. There had been no rush of gall, no urge to do murder. Though he fully intended to kill Enderley, this prospect now seemed inevitable and monotonous. The title of this chapter <laughs> is The Mongoose and the Cobra, and Monson names Enderley as the snake. But I looked up this up because, of course, I did. And mongooses disproportionately win fights against king cobras. Like, there's this dynamic um, <laughs> that exists out there in nature. So I say that because it, I feel like their dynamic is inevitable, where, like, Sean could definitely kill Enderly, but he would not regain anything of what he's lost because of Enderly. Yeah, and then so, and this is also kind of like 
right when he's he's having this shift on like how he feels about and how he perceives Catherine. And so I think that he is he's been spending all of that time like getting his revenge and then here he is like is it feels like nothing and it feels like nothing because it is nothing. Like yeah. uh, he doesn't know how little or he just realizes kind of at this point, like how little Enderly actually cares about Catherine. But I also don't think that's the point. I think that like, even if Enderly did care about Catherine so much, it's like uh, Enderly probably cared a lot about his timber that Sean burned, but like he still has that same reaction. And I do really appreciate that. It's not necessarily that just that Enderly doesn't care about Catherine. It's that Sean is is starting to at least kind of grasp that this isn't going to feel the way he wants it to. Yeah, that when that part came up, I kept expecting a bigger action out of Sean, like him just passively and coolly observing Enderly. I was like waiting for this moment of like something to happen mm-hmm. where he may, I, I, like I at that point I think he still plans on like financially ruining him even more. So mm-hmm. it's like not quite at that point in his plan, but yeah, I kind of I kind of love that Monson gives Sean this uh, hollow feeling like this. It's just like so anticlimactic, I guess, mm-hmm. is what yeah. I'm trying to say. It really is. And then like, I mean, we'll get into this later, too. But spoiler for our own episode, like uh, <laughs> there isn't really a resolution with Enderly. Like, uh, yeah, he kind of uh, he he does take a really big financial and reputational hit. But there's no like big like other romance novels would have this big climactic moment or this big comeuppance that all of the characters have to reckon with. But Enderly like essentially disappears from the narrative uh, after a certain point, aside from being like referenced once. And it makes sense because they've they have different problems at that point. Yeah, I think I kind of like that's how he ended so often you'll read a book and the bad character gets the comeuppance, which I like. And if you're reading a book, say like a mystery that you want like some justice to happen, but Mm -hmm. how often in life, like the worst person, you know, lives like the longest, happiest (laughs) life ever. (laughs) And that I think works in this book, like with how, um, with what Monson is trying to say, I feel like it's very fitting actually that Enderly doesn't die at the end. Yeah. Yeah. It's like Enderly is responsible for the, the massacre at Kenlo, mm-hmm. but which is like Sean's like political harm mm-hmm. um, and the one that he holds closest to him. But the, the the subjugation of Ireland is at the hands of an entire country. It's like the right. thing that would cause the solution would be like a united Ireland that is free from English subjugation, mm-hmm. which is not going to happen when it's like if he kills Enderly, another war profiteer is going to come in and be manipulating the political situation to harm people. And there's going to be this country that is ruling over a, another colonized area. Mm-hmm. Um, like the problem is colonization, which is not going to be solved with one comeuppance. And so that, and and so kind of uh, when he when he meets Enderly, so that that point like uh, it was a little bit more of a turning point in his relationship for him with Catherine. Um, but when Catherine learns that Sean didn't needlessly kill the men at Holdenwood, uh, which he pretended that he had, but he really just burned the timber and then didn't kill them. So when she finds out that that didn't actually happen and they didn't die, that's kind of a turning point for her. Um, so they're still caught in this captive-captor relationship. And it's not like things are suddenly okay now or they're suddenly in a romance. 
But Catherine does start looking at Sean with sympathy or with increased sympathy and with uh, a budding fondness. And this is kind of, I want to say, because we keep talking about like abuse, like this is kind of like a honeymoon phase, I would say, mm-hmm. of their relationship. And then as Sean gets deeper into plotting the rebellion, he decides to send Catherine away to keep her safe. Notably, he's not sending her back to Sean Enderly, as you've noted. Like that's not like her life there is over. But meanwhile, a jealous Liam coerces Catherine into marrying and running away with him and betraying Sean. So when Sean finds out what they've done, he thinks to himself that he experienced the first hate. Like, it's just like this, it's this like brutal, tense moment where you know, like, really bad things are going to happen. So he recaptures Catherine and then all hell breaks loose. So... There's kind of a lot of plot in this discussion and in this portion that we're going to discuss. Uh, But basically what you need to know is that uh, Catherine does betray Sean. Like she is coerced by Liam, who has bad intentions and is framing things to her in uh, a poor light. Like she's coerced into into betraying Sean and uh, kind of fucking up the rebellion because like if if she hadn't run off with Liam Liam actually ends up uh passing on information to the British and like giving them uh giving them a heads up of what the the Irish were planning on doing so this is kind of like a huge huge loss not just for Sean personally with Catherine running away from him but a huge loss politically like everything that they had worked for for years uh, comes crashing down around him and the woman that he thinks that he loves ran off with his brother. So that's kind of what you need to know when we're talking about this section, um, what has kind of occurred. Yeah, I think it's important that Catherine's betrayal of Sean is not just a personal one, that she's not just doing it. She's not just tricked into it by Liam. Liam explains to her like what's going on with the rebellion and makes it very clear that Sean is intending to align himself with France. And that Napoleon is sort of taking advantage of the Irish Rebellion because it's going to be this conduit into England. And this is how Napoleon is sort of planning to take over England. And this this is historically accurate that this sort of alliance between France and Ireland is, is happening at the time during the rebellion. And so Catherine makes this conscious decision. She hears about Napoleon. And she's like, if Napoleon comes, like if Napoleon has access through Ireland, that will be terrible for England. And she identifies as English. And she she's like, also, she's able to see if Napoleon has the power over Ireland, that Napoleon is not going to let Ireland have independent rule. Also, like, that she she thinks that this is a, a bad alliance to be making. Well, Sean thinks that he will be able to, like, overpower and be able to sort of rule Ireland independent from Napoleon. So that Catherine is actually making her own political machinations and is also actually betraying Sean for sort of her own reasons, opposed to just the manipulation, makes everything more complicated, but also makes Catherine, it makes it clear that she's very smart, that she has her own motivations and that she's not just being manipulated by Liam because it, she she does. The, I think it's important that the betrayal of Sean is not a, just a misunderstanding. Yeah, I on a mac, on a micro level, I like that Catherine develops a lot of empathy for the Irish while she's living there. She sees her father in a whole new light um, where she learns that he's this war criminal but I, I do like that she is still loyal to the English despite this, like, growing awareness of, like, the Irish plight and, like, what has happened and how much damage has been done. Does that make sense? Like, I don't think mm-hmm. those loyalties are easily discarded. 
this is the part this is the part of the book that I like it just like wrecks me every time like mm. it, it's it's like it's definitely the toughest to read um because you kind of know what's coming and Catherine and it is a decision that Catherine makes uh Liam does like it's it's kind of hard to explain the way that it happens in the book but Le- Liam does kind of like coerce and yeah. kind of like take advantage of the situation but ultimately Catherine does make the decision uh for her own reasons as you mentioned and so this kind of leads into Sean captures Catherine and then he uh kind of begins round 2 of like the of abuse like yeah. he's so angry with her and I'm not going to describe in detail what he does, but it's it's kind of it's not kind of it's like it's very devastating. It's very difficult to read. And part of part of what happens is that she ends up almost getting starved uh, to death and then she uh, gets gravely injured and miscarries. I kind of see this like like the two big acts like there's the first the beginning where he captures her and then she's kind of like working uh, she's working at Shalon and she's like kind of like trying to escape. And then there's this portion, like after she had made that decision and then he reacts like even more viciously than he did the first time. And I think probably because he like the betrayal was like uh, tiered. What we just discussed is difficult to stomach uh, and Sean's brutal and careless punishment of Catherine ends in her near death and miscarriage. And this is kind of like another turning point for Sean. I wouldn't call this portion of the story a time jump per se, but time moves pretty quickly in the story to show just how long it takes for Catherine to gain some semblance of self in her physical and emotional recovery. What do you think of this recovery period and of Catherine eventually rekindling her relationship with Sean? I think one of the reasons that we're like struggling to talk about this is because the the thing that Sean sort of like works on forgiving Catherine for is the betrayal of him as like a partner. She thinks that she's run off with Liam because she's in love with Liam. And that's the part that becomes like very clear that she did not love Liam mm-hmm. and didn't want to be with him. And so it's like the, even though she, and she takes the responsibility for the, like the political betrayal. And she's like, I, I, that part she owns, but the part that she also um, sort of obfuscates about is that she, she, protects Liam by saying like letting Sean think that she was in love with Liam and that's why she ran off with him the the fact that it's hard to pull out these like personal versus political betrayals like that works sort of in Monson's like narrative favor that those things are complicated for these characters and for everyone but in the rekindling of the relationship with Sean again we're sort of entering this like honeymoon period where she's he's very attentive of her and he's very upset when people try to harm her like the the near starvation comes from not Sean, it's from another uh, character who is responsible for feeding Catherine, has not been feeding her. And that's when he realizes that other people are trying to harm her as well, and he becomes angry at that and becomes more protective of her. That character who was starving Catherine, it wasn't like Sean was explicitly, hey, don't feed her, treat her badly. That was like, that character also has motivation because she likes Sean she doesn't she knows Catherine is like an ex an ex of his, which sounds super <laughs> underwhelming in the way to say it. And I think that's kind of another dramatic shift in their relationship. So Chels kind of mentioned this isn't like a time jump because before in this part like before this part in the book, several months 
is like the first 200 pages or so where he's abusing mm-hmm. her. And then this next portion, what he is helping recover, that's like a two-year period, but it's mm-hmm. much more condensed. But I think Monson speeds up that time because Catherine needed that time to recover. But as like a reader, you don't need to read every single time that Sean like helps her out of bed and like feeds her and all that. So I think mm-hmm. it was necessary to do that. But yeah, I see this as like their second milestone in their relationship. Like I feel like there's a couple turning points and this is one of the main ones is after this like recovery period. Yeah, and this this portion also has this like scene that sticks with me. Um, when Catherine recovers enough, Sean takes her to the hill where their baby, who she has named Michael, is buried. Mm-hmm. The hill is covered in stars of Bethlehem, uh, which are the same white flowers that Catherine planted on Maud's grave earlier in the story. So they expanded and spread as promised. Both Maud and Michael's death feel kind of avoidable and pointless. And I like that Monson tied them together here with Sean on that hill saying humility is a bitter draft to swallow. I Yeah, as I said earlier, to me, this is the saddest part of the book. Uh, I'm not like bolstered by Sean's regret. And there's kind of this question of, you know, uh, there's kind of like a desolation to everything that's happened. It, it feels very much like you have, you read like a war epic and, and when everybody's trying to like pick up the pieces of the town afterwards, it's kind of like what this section of the book feels like to me. And you kind of are wondering, like, are they ever going to get out of this cycle? Like, is this going to, is this all that there is? So it's very, it's a very heartbreaking moment. I like that you said that Maude and Michael's death feels, they feel pointless almost. Like they have like, but like in an actual like real world, like the world that Sean and Catherine are living in, like, yeah, they could have easily avoided these deaths. But I think that's the byproduct of violence a lot of times is like these very needless casualties that it's just so devastating to read. Mm -hmm. So I am actually glad that Munson kept that or has that in there. Yeah. And I think something important about the miscarriage and the circumstances of the miscarriage is the, the so the miscarriage happens like before, like Catherine is like carrying mm-hmm. um, the fetus in her and the fetus has, has died and is not growing anymore before she, she starts becoming ill and Sean makes her ride a horse and the horse accident is what causes her, her injuries, but she's already miscarried. And that's revealed the doctor's able to like identify like how long, the, how old the fetus was. And despite her, her pregnant, her, like, she thinks she's six months pregnant, but her fetus is four months old. The horse riding is not what causes the miscarriage. It's, and I think this is, like, important for Sean because he realizes, like, the lack of, like, attention and lack of relationship with Catherine is, is what would have, like, led to her death. That she would have just died in her cell carrying this um, unviable fetus and, like, that was going to, like, poison her. Yeah, she would have died um, of sepsis. Yeah. And so it's, like, the, the lack of, that sort of anonym, um, like anonymous death would have – that he's aware that that's a possibility. That seems to be the thing that sort of shakes him out of his his inattention of her. And, like, the inattention to her, is that's the thing that's, like, harming her the most, where she sort of becomes, like, catatonic mm-hmm. um, and doesn't know how to react to him anymore. And that's all – that seems like almost a separate thing from the, the injuries that she suffers on the horse, a separate harm and a separate reaction from Sean. Yeah, it's like the physical injuries and then he recognizes the lack of trust that she didn't tell him that she was pregnant and it went on long enough that she had the miscarriage. Anyway, it's all devastating. <laughs> yeah. 
and I guess before I get into the next point, just to kind of like make it make sense is like, as we mentioned, it's like, it's a big kind of a lot of time has passed in the recovery and there's like the realization for Sean. And then there's like another consent negotiation. Uh, it's not that like, there's this realization he takes care of her. They're back together. Like it's kind of a long process and then they do get back together and they do profess love to each other. Uh, so that's kind of what happens before this next point, which is that, so Liam returns to Shalon and tells Sean that Brendan, their father slept with Catherine's mother and that Catherine is actually their half sister. Liam shows Sean a pretty convincing document that is supposedly proves this. And while we were texting about this book before everyone had finished, I said that the incest storyline is is basically the third act breakup. Uh, to me, it was pretty obvious that Liam wasn't telling the whole truth. And like, this isn't actually going to, this isn't actually incest. Um, how did you feel about this reveal? This is the plot that I'm the most sort of unsure of like how to talk about or like why it's there um, and the function of it in the narrative. The violence, I feel like I can reconcile really easily of like the function of it. The incest feels like kind of, shoehorned in so that there's this third act breakup at least for me yeah uh, and we we're pro third act breakups on this podcast uh we're just saying it's not a satisfying third act breakup and i agree with emma i think she lays like the groundwork for it and then also because throughout the book it's often just kind of public or common knowledge that sean is probably a bastard and so where you're like, okay, I guess maybe incest, but... <laughs> right. It seems pretty obvious that Brendan is... Brendan Colleen is not Sean's father. So when the whole, this whole... They blow up their whole world because of this, like, document that proves it. And then they never... No one is ever like, well, like, maybe... Maybe Sean is not Brendan's son. It seems like all the characters sort of forgot that that was, like, the... Sort of the breadcrumbs the whole time. Um, and that, that ends up being the solution also, is that he's not Brendan's son. So this part, I'm I'm less. Uh, I, I just I'm, I'm not sure what to do. With. I feel like uh, to me the function of the third act breakup is like that final cementing of the couple. Like yes, we definitely want to be together. And like before the they figure out that they're not actually brother and sister, they're like cemented together. Like they've gone through so much stuff. Like this like added incest storyline just feels like we're adding pages. And I think that was like a comment. <laughs> thing we all felt we have to go to france beth yeah we gotta go to I france do see the point of like where it's like what what does what do Catherine and sean's relationship look like when they're not having sex because they stop having sex once they think that they're brother and sister it's like maybe that's an element that's nice that's like there yeah. is, there's this like loyalty um and this devotion to each other despite this relationship that they they think and so i, I kind of get that point and i also i do think the function of Liam being so cruel to Sean and Catherine. I like that Liam comes back um, and has to confront them and they have to deal with Liam again because that leads to one of my favorite scenes in the book. But maybe I just, I mean, I I don't know. Maybe we wouldn't feel so, I don't, I don't think we feel negative, but like maybe it would have been stronger if it wasn't dragged out for so long. Cause like third act breakup is typically fewer pages. So I feel like that final hurdle would have hit harder of like okay they're still super loyal to each other even though they feel like they can never be together because they're still like it's third act breakup but it's out of like six acts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um yeah i 
I was thinking about this because, yeah, I, I think it was pretty bold of her to do it for so long. Um, and I think that it's kind of like a, a delicate needle to thread um, because if readers read this and they're just like, oh, I'm actually reading about incestuous lovers, a lot of people would get grossed out and put the book down. But Liam is obviously not a trustworthy character. So as a reader, you're like, this can't be right, even though she doesn't really like hit you over the head with it, I don't think. Like... I thought for me, I wasn't, I wasn't quite sure how it was going to get resolved. Like it wasn't quite as obvious to me because it seemed like there were like conflicting information about uh, John's parentage. Uh, so it kind of depended on like who you believed as an authority for that. The Silver Devil actually has a plot line that's really similar to this. Um, so like Felicia in that book, the heroine was raised in poverty and she didn't know her father. And then when she was living as the Duke of Cabria's mistress, his former lover tells her that they're brother and sister. But I think for that book, the relationship uh, the, or that misunderstanding is only for like maybe a chapter or two. But Monson is like, here's 150 pages. Um, and so yeah. I thought that was kind of, I thought that was kind of bold. Um, but, and that you do have to be kind of careful with it because yeah, if, if, if people thought that that was true and they thought, and they didn't like if they didn't really want to get because like it's, it's so and it's the success is kind of as you mentioned maybe not it's maybe not fully successful just because like at this point we're all kind of exhausted by everything but <laughs> i do i do think kind of like there are like some plot problems that you have to solve right like i think for me like you have to get out of shalon like that is like yeah, they yeah. can't stay there um so there has to be something else that happens and I think like involving Liam in that, like making Liam be kind of a, a boogeyman of the end, um, which we'll talk a little bit more about him later. But yeah, let's kind of move on. So to um, once Catherine recovers, they think that they're brother and sister, so they can't be together. Uh, and Sean attempts to return her to England only to get captured by John Enderley. So once Sean is captured, he is tortured pretty brutally by John Enderley. So we're back to an eye for an eye again. What do you think Monson was trying to say here? These were some of the hardest scenes for me to read, I think, because I didn't know what was going to happen like, or like when it was going to happen or the extent or like the, the pacing of it. I can kind of, in the interpersonal relationship between Sean and Catherine, I could kind of predict like, okay, like she's done something. I now know how he's going to respond. And I sort of got into a rhythm with them. Mm-hmm. This one was like, I wasn't like when you would meet a character in his torture chamber, you weren't sure like who, like, is this going to be someone who's helping him or is this going to be someone who's even worse than the last character we met? Because you're, you meet all these people pretty quickly in, um, in sequence. But yeah, it's become, it becomes clear just the, like the level of ire that John Enderley has that he, like he really is as bad as Sean seems to think that he was, that it wasn't just this, like something getting stuck in his craw and this like vengeance. It's like Enderley is capable of this like incredibly, violent reaction and on like a personal level like he's not just burning a village like he's asking for um, a man to be castrated because it sort of confirms the the violence of Enderly and it's just this like completely unsatisfactory sort of justice like Enderly has Catherine back and it's he he, the personal harm is is corrected supposedly he's torturing Sean I think for information but I can't remember what information he's trying to get out of him just a confession um or is it plans i don't remember now yeah the the it's yeah. <laughs> don't ask me about the plot. <laughs> yeah we only each remember the plot about 50 percent. if i didn't write it if i didn't 
If I didn't write it in this document. <laughs> it's it's not there. Yeah. Um, I do like what you said about it being more revealing about John Enderley's character. I think that's kind of what we're what we're kind of supposed to get out of it. Like Catherine at this point is like desperate to save Sean. Like she doesn't want to see him tortured, even though she suffered such extreme abuse. And even as the reader, it's not, like I have com- complicated feelings about Sean, but it's not like I'm cheering that he's getting tortured here. Like it's awful. Like it's a t- those scenes are terrible. So yeah, I think it's just saying a lot more about who John Enderley is and. Like you said, Emma, he's got his daughter back. Supposedly, the personal harm is repaired, but he's vindictive, so. And, yeah, and if you were to root for Sean to get hurt, like, like if you were, like, someone who was, like, okay, I want, Sean deserves this. I want this to happen to them. Like, you would ostensibly be saying, because of Catherine. Like, I yeah. want this to happen to him because of Catherine. But uh, Catherine doesn't want that like Catherine at this point calls him her heart's husband and she is the one who ends up saving him she has to go to Mm -hmm. pretty extreme links like put her put herself in some pretty like tricky political situations uh, in order to rescue him uh from the prison and then take him back to Ireland so it's kind of again like if we're like if we're gonna do an eye for an eye which we don't that's not like how we kind of see things here you're kind of just like zooming in on on Sean's on what Sean has done and let's kind of like if we do that like are we rooting for Enderly then like yeah <laughs> you know yeah, what it's I mean? like the like, way you can self-examine a bit like uh-huh. right and even if you if you're like okay like Catherine has Stockholm syndrome she doesn't actually want to be with Sean like if you're having this like very like sort of intellectual reaction to the plot of the book if and you want Sean to experience harm, like harm based on the harm that he's caused as this like retribution, Catherine should be the one who enacts it, like narratively. Right. Like, it makes sense for if, if if this ends up being a story of revenge against Sean, Catherine is the one who should get to dictate what revenge is taking place against him. Um, and even if you're rooting for her to realize that, um, Enderly is not the one who should get to dictate it because it, he's like stealing the chance of like d- deciding what happens to Sean from Catherine. Right, but I feel like. Maybe another reason why this happens is just, like, harm and violence happens in this book, like, through other people. So it's, like, Sean and John, Sean and John, Sean and Enderly are trying to harm each other through people adjacent to them. Like, okay, I'm going to get back at Enderly through his daughter. Um, so Catherine rescues John, as I mentioned, and then returns him to Shallan. And then Liam and his henchman Rouge arrive and accost them. So the henchman attacks Catherine and is trying to rape her, actually. And then Liam comes in and then kills Rouge. Then Liam moves to kill Sean, which is ostensibly why he showed up. Catherine begs him not to kill Sean, but Liam doesn't listen. When Liam is distracted, Catherine grabs Rouge's gun and then she shoots and kills Liam. What do you think of Liam's death and the explosion that burns Shallan shortly after? So this was probably my favorite scene in the whole book. I texted the group chat. I was like, this was, I just was like so super moved by it. I thought it was the best written scene. It was like very gripping at a part in the book that I was kind of having trouble like getting through because it's towards the end where I was like, how am I going to finish this book? Um, but the scene just was very arresting. And this is kind of like what I was talking about where like Catherine gets to determine this like revenge. Like she, the fact that she does this violence to protect Sean and is like sort of the, is the period on the end of Liam's life 
feels feels important that she that Sean doesn't kill Liam. Liam doesn't die accidentally. Doesn't take his own life. She, Catherine gets to decide that this. These are the stakes for her, and that she's protecting herself and Sean. It just it makes sense that Catherine it now is like this like firsthand participant in in revenge and ending things, which which she sort of has not been able to do. She's like uh, Sean doesn't let her kill him. Doesn't let her kill herself. She doesn't get to end anything, and this feels like a really satisfactory moment, even if it's not. It doesn't feel like redemptive in any way. Yeah. It doesn't feel like those sort of comeuppances where you're like, oh, like this release of like, oh, like evil is beaten. It just feels like, oh, now Catherine at least gets to be a participant fully in a way that even if she, I think she's very sad that Liam dies, but um, it's something that needed to happen for the sake of her and Sean. I'm trying not to be flippant, but I was like so happy when Liam died. <laughs> I was surprised that Catherine's the one to kill him, but I think that that works out. Maybe puts her on Sean's Sean's level a little bit. I was I was surprised by that like intimacy that Catherine and Liam had after she shoots him. So she shoots him and he doesn't immediately die. And then she moves towards his body and Sean is like, get get away from Liam. He still has a gun. And then she says, Liam won't hurt me. It would be like killing himself. And I've been thinking about this line all night because I can't quite pinpoint what it means like he won't hurt me because I'm too important to him or he won't hurt me because we are one in the same it's because she's too important to him even though it's kind of muddy like we were talking about earlier it's Mm -hmm. like does Liam even love Catherine or is he just trying to get what up on Sean I think it can be both like it's most relationships are complex and they're not neat so yeah I think the very least you could say that Catherine was very important to Liam, even though yeah. he saw her in such a weird way. And I guess those don't really have to be like opposing things, right? Yeah. Like he could be using, uh, he could have kind of like started to form this obsession with Catherine and that kind of like intent, he already had it, but it kind of like intensified being like, it's either me or, or Sean, like, and that kind of like, maybe like solidified her importance and made her more important to him but it maybe it doesn't necessarily like negate that importance like even though some of it aren't coming from like pure good reasonings or emotions like that mm-hmm. doesn't like take away the feeling yeah i think this also parallels sort of something that sean brings up because people in in shalon like in the the first and second cycle of abuse with Catherine mentioned him like if, if you keep behaving like this like she will die and his reaction usually is like, well, I'm not going to kill her. Like, I, that's like not the thing that he's thinking of. It's like not in his concept of like his reactions to Catherine that like his actions would reach that level. For some reason, he has this block for Catherine for most of the book where like he, he doesn't want to kill her because it's like so quickly he becomes attached to her in this way that like can't even conceptualize that. So I think it's another parallel also between Liam and Sean where they just have this like very strong attachment to her. It's like they can't even conceptualize ending ending her despite their abuses against her. Mm-hmm. Um, for some that that seems important. They both have this like stopgap. Yeah, and I kind of want to talk about this scene. Is the it's the book cover? So um, the the burning of Shalon where they're like embracing out in front. 
and I just like that's kind of like what I was kind of like when we were talking about like the uh, the third act breakup and kind of like what we're gonna do and what's happening with Liam. Like I just like I'm just like a firm believer that Shalon had to burn. Like it just had to uh, because it was Liam's legacy and like Liam is like you can leave John Enderly as a loose thread, but you can't leave Liam as a loose thread. And like I I think that's kind of like maybe for me like you just you have that imagery from the beautiful Pinot cover, but then it's also like it's such a fraught moment that it was hard it was hard for me to predict what was going to happen and it was really emotional and still sad like i i felt sad i i don't like liam but i was kind of like i, I know that he ha- i know that he kind of had to die you know you didn't, you didn't feel victorious like i did <laughs> you yeah like i <laughs> you're liam is the worst all cats <laughs> yes liam is the worst I think it does make sense that this is the point where I think all three of us felt like un- untethered by the plot because the ne- what happens after Shalon burns is just kind of wild and like you don't know what's going to happen because Shalon has been this like touchstone for the mm-hmm. whole plot like that they're always going to come back to it people get sent away from it and then they they're like, then they're not in the action like we don't see Liam really when he's away from Shalon we don't see Catherine when she's away like it, the, they're always returning to this this like lighthouse of sorts for them and so once Shalon is gone. Like what have they been working for? Like what are they what are they doing anything for? Um, and it becomes very untethered. So I think the experience of the reader afterwards is like you you have no idea what's gonna happen because obviously they're still like on the run. They still think they're brother and sister, so there's still plot to resolve. But we now have lost the main setting of the book. I like that you pointed that out that they feel untethered, and I think it's because they lose that place that they keep going back to. Because now they have to find a new home. But I also agree with Charles and what they said that it kind of had to burn. Because, and you have this in your point, Charles, which I'm completely stealing, that they have so much shared history there, that Catherine and Sean have so much history there. So it feels symbolic, like burn that down, burn our history down. We go find a new home. How, yeah, how successfully Munson pulled off the next 100 pages is up for it to be. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think that feeling untethered is okay because that's how they feel. Like, what are they going to do now? Like, Shalon is burned. Where did they go? Yeah. And it's like, even after all of uh, that, like, everything that's happened in the, in the book and, like, how, I, it's just like they don't – neither of them – the next portion of the book happens in France and neither of them move through the world easily there. Like they, neither of them seem like they both are very much foreigners. They're both like, they both kind of like have even less control than they do at this point. So it does kind of like, I was kind of stressed through a lot of it and was uh, kind of, I, I was kind of like wanting to get back to something and I, but I wasn't sure what. So I guess kind of we'll, we'll kind of cover the last portion of the book. Um, so after Liam's death, Sean and Catherine escape to France on a boat. They're picked up by Amari, who's a Frenchman that they had previously hosted at Chalon. Catherine is uh, pregnant with Sean's child, but they try to keep separated from each other because they still believe they're related. Catherine captures the eye of Napoleon, and Amari offers Catherine a marriage to protect her from being forced to become Napoleon's mistress. When Catherine realizes that she and Sean are also suspected of being royalists, she agrees. So this is the part of the story that we've kind of been talking about over and over again that we're just like, uh, I don't know. Uh, it's very fraught because Amori is lying to Catherine. Uh, so he has political machinations with Napoleon that he's using Catherine for. So she doesn't know 
that she does have something to lose from this marriage. Uh, and then Sean is kind of simultaneously also in danger because he's working against Napoleon and putting his life at risk. Uh, so they come to France to escape, but they're kind of like thrown right back into the fire again. But only this time, like neither of them are on their home turf. Yep. I barely remembered this. Chelsea <laughs> <Just laughs> had to re-explain it to me before this episode started. There's so many new characters. Yeah, who are a lot only of there new for like characters. six chapters. A lot of so duels. Many, like, four duels. Yes. Like duels yeah. and like lady servants who have like different levels of loyalty to Catherine. Mm-hmm. And multiple multiple people like whose names start with M. Mm-hmm. Like there's Mora comes back as a ballet dancer. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. And then there's Madeline who does not like. Uh, Catherine and then Maylin. Yep, um, and both of them are like exes or like mistresses of Sean, right? Madeline yeah. and Maylin, yeah. or Mylin. I'm not sure how you'd pronounce it, but yeah, it's it's a lot to keep track of. Yeah, I think kind of. Uh, this just occurred to me, so this could be quite a stupid thought, but I'm like, I wonder if Monson uh, put in this last part because she was like, I gotta show that Sean was not cool with Napoleon. <laughs> <laughs> That he wasn't actually cool, even though he was originally going to ally with France. Yeah, he he. She, she was like, "I can't leave it with Sean." So she's proud Napoleon. Yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> okay. I think it's clear before though that like Sean is just using Napoleon as like a means to an end. I wasn't like reading uh-huh. that part, being like, "Oh yeah, he's like a hardcore French ally." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but he like actively starts working against him. Like he, like, yeah. Um, and then, and what I really, I actually kind of like, it's one of those things that I don't enjoy while reading it, but I really enjoyed talking about it. Like before this episode, I was like recapping the France part to, to Beth and Emma. And I was just like, okay. And then these are when this, so basically there's a series of increasing duels yeah. because they're trying to kill Sean. And so they're just having other people like uh, upset Sean enough to, which where, to yeah, which isn't hard to do. And then Sean would like duel them. And then Sean is of course very good at dueling and then mm-hmm. Sean kills them. Um, and then the final duel is actually, um, uh, so at this point, like, Sean has killed enough people in the duel that they're just like, okay, we're just going to kill him. Like, we can't, we can't, we can't do the duel thing anymore. It's not working out for us. Pretty much everyone's like, Sean, you got to get out of here. You right, got this right. reputation for being a duelist. And, um, and so, and so they're actually going to like send assassins. And so, so this is kind of like where Sean needs to exit. Uh, but then like Catherine is still married to Amori, which we know he knows, we know he's a bad guy. And Amori actually ends up like kind of going to confront Sean. And so then final duel is between Amori and Sean and uh, Sean kills him. And so then Catherine is free, which then gets into the ending, uh, which, wow, it took, it does feel like, it kind of feels like, I feel like this episode feels kind of like what reading Stormfire is like. like <laughs> yeah. It's just like, it was so lengthy and so tense. Um, but I think maybe tomorrow we're going to feel like we accomplished something. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so then this gets into the end. So uh, they still believe their brother and sister. Uh, Sean leaves, but before he leaves, Catherine is like, okay, I'm sending um, – Catherine's baby has just been born. Catherine's like, okay – I'm going to live in a convent. And then when he's old enough, I'm going to send him to you because I can't raise him in a convent. And Sean's like, cool. And then uh, 
he eventually returns because someone who worked at the convent like decided to do a deep dive into Sean's parental history. Yeah, he was very uncover- concerned about them potentially being brother and sister. So he like lays out the lineage and finds- <laughs> we find out that they're actually not not brother yeah. and sister. And so at the very, very end of the book, confirmation, they are not brother and sister. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Sean, Catherine, and their child, whose name is Brendan, sail off into the sunset and then uh there is no epilogue uh which i think epilogues were a lot less common back then uh, right. they're like almost required now but yeah. um yeah the, and then it's just kind of like it's like the the 10 pages of happiness and then uh and then it's done yeah so, so how do you how do we feel how do we feel now <laughs> like overall i'm glad i read stormfire and like I said at the very beginning of the episode, we're going to come back around. We'll read other books by Christine Monson because she's a good writer. I think yeah. if it, this book sounds interesting to you, you should definitely check it out and see see why it's so seminal in romance. Yeah, I think the ending is interesting with no epilogue. I, I don't know. And this is, I, I wish there were more like interviews with Monson or that there was more of a, a documentation of her process. Yeah. Because there's no, like, I don't, usually I have an idea, I'm like, oh, I can, I can picture people, like, what their lives are going to be like in the future um, together. I have no picture for Sean and Catherine. I have, I have no idea, like, where they could live. She has inherited her mother's estates. This is part of the plot in France, right? That she, she thinks that she can't inherit the, the Countess's estates because of the royalist connections, but then she's allowed to. So they have some sort of money, property that's been sort of like laid the groundwork of like how they can finance themselves. But I don't, I don't know if they're going to live in France. I don't know if they're going to live in Ireland. I don't know. Like also it's like, we know what's coming in Ireland. The 19th century is not necessarily any better than the 18th century for Irish people. So we don't, we don't know what's going to happen with them. So it's like that happily ever after feels very like this is when the book has to end because we don't like the happily ever after the ever after part is a little question mark for this couple. Mm. Which I have read other older books that are like that. The one that it kind of reminds me of is um, A Bed of Spices by Barbara Samuel, mm-hmm. which is another very like historical book that's like placed in a very specific moment in the Jewish pogroms in um, Strasbourg in medieval Germany. That's It's an interfaith relationship between a Christian woman and a Jewish man. And they, they also have to leave their home. They leave Strasbourg to go to Northern Africa to live in a Jewish community there. And again, it's sort of that feeling where you're like, they're together, but like I don't, They've, they've experienced quite a bit of loss of their community um, when they leave Strasbourg. And the pogroms are just one of the worst things that's ever happened in history. And so it's, it's set in this like very tragic moment. And that this I have a similar feeling towards where it's like, they're together. That's the happily ever after that we get. But what, what their lives are going to be like, they're not going to be at some country estate. You can't imagine like a sequel where, they're, yeah. <laughs> where they, they come back and they're like, oh, like at, at a dinner party, um, like so many couples do in other universes. It is kind of hard to think of them like living like a life of domesticity after all of this. I don't think they would. I think that they would probably like get themselves into trouble somehow. Um, and maybe that's maybe that's OK. Maybe we should just. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, no, I'm so glad uh, they all read Stormfire now. Um, and yeah, I think kind of like for me, like even I, I think kind of like it's one of those books where I remember I remember so much of like how I feel all the time. Like it's like, it just kind of sticks with me. And then also like there are such beautiful lines in here that I've like pulled out and I think about all the time. I think about the butterfly speech so often. I think about uh, 
some of the things that Sean says to to Catherine that's like not really romantic and kind of threatening, but also is like written in a way that's just like makes it sad. That's kind of mm-hmm. something that I, I remember too, like the very beginning of the book when Catherine first sees Sean. So she's quotes Paradise Lost and then she calls him Lucifer. And then the first thing she's like, he's Lucifer. He looks sad. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> right. it's like such an understatement, but it's also kind of like beautifully simplistic. Yeah, I don't know. I know this book, if this was just like a barrage of violence, like that reviewer implied, uh, Mm -hmm. people wouldn't still be reading Stormfire. Like there are, it's not unique in the sense of the violence, despite what people might seem like you can quite easily find like some pretty violent books from this era that are romance novels. Also, I think, I wonder how many readers who... Um, and probably fairly, like fairly DNF it after um, like the first rape scene uh, is very hard to read. It's very incredibly violent. And I, could, I imagine if it's like if you think that that's going to be the whole book and like there's going to be no other plot, it would, I could imagine people stopping reading it, which is, is fair. Like protect yourself if you don't want to read that. You don't have to. But there are the book does have like ebbs and flows of violence that make it made it easier for me to read where it was like I, I could take a break. Or, like, I would know that, like, I'm not going to get just, like, chapter after chapter of, like, violence. There's going to be plot. And there's also going to be a reason for it. That there's, it's going to, it's going to happen in a context. Mm -hmm. And then, like, too, I do think this book, because it's out of print and because of its reputation, I do think that a lot of people who read Stormfire have at least some awareness of what it is. You know what I mean? Like, I think think you tweet, I think you said, uh, tweet about this you don't accidentally read Stormfire. <laughs> yeah it's kind of I think I think some people have and you can kind of tell too when you read reviews of it like who went into the book like looking to be upset by it mm. um and yeah. I mean I think that's fine to have your own boundaries and I think your reactions are valid but I think it's I think it's a little disingenuous to pretend that you weren't aware of at least the reputation and then also mm. kind of like I do kind of, I really hate the decontextualization. That's kind of something that I, I, I think about a lot. Like when people read bodice rippers or when people talk about books, you know, you'll just pull something and then say, this is all there is. And I think, I, I think that having that boundary is fine. Like quit when you want to quit when something doesn't work for you. I definitely do. Yeah. Um, but then kind of to, but I, these people are not the ones that quit the book because it was too much for them. They read the whole thing and then they just yeah. talk about the <laughs> that's a good note to end on please intentionally read stormfire because you want to (laughs) (laughs) because it sounds interesting either way thanks for listening to us talk about it i think Mm i i want people to know about stormfire i don't think you need to yeah i don't think you need to read it if you don't want to read it but i I think having we're all about contextualizing here (laughs) yeah But yeah, thank you so much for listening to Reformed Rakes. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find bonus content on our Patreon at patreon.com slash reformedrakes. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram for show updates, and the username for both is at reformedrakes. Thank you again, and we'll see you next time.